This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Of course, you heard of the story of the CF-18 fighter jet crash uh, that uh, it it went down at CFB Cold Lake, uh, causing one death. We are now finding out that uh, the pilot is, in fact, from Hamilton. And what we'll play for you now is a uh, a comment from Colonel Paul Doyle at at Four Wing, Cold Lake, Alberta. Yesterday, we lost uh, one of our own, uh, Captain Thomas McQueen, originally from Hamilton, Ontario, and a CF-18 Hornet pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force who had served his country with distinction for 10 years. So there you have it. Uh, Captain Thomas McQueen from Hamilton was engaged to be married to a woman who lives in the Cold Lake area. And at that point, uh, that's pretty much all the information we have. Uh just out of sheer coincidence, also a plane carrying uh, Brazil's soccer team crashed in Colombia, killing 75. Uh, six people did survive. Three are from the team. To talk about all of this, Robert J. Coconis is with us, President and Managed Director of AirTrav, Inc., a aviation advisory firm, and he is with us now. Hello, Robert. How are you today? I'm very good. Uh, first of all, uh, your comments on uh, the CF-18 uh, crash. Lots don't realize how dangerous this game is, even when you know they're heading out for uh, training and test flights and this sort of thing. Can you elaborate on that a bit? I mean, th- this has always happened. Whenever you're, uh, you are uh, training with a high-performance uh, fighter jet, uh, this even happened. We had a number of crashes, for example, with our Snowbird uh, aircraft, arguably even older than the F-18s, but, or the CF-18s. These aircraft are, are exceptionally well-maintained by the forces, but the reality is when you are conducting training exercises, for example, to give a metric for you, the CF-18 can fly over the speed of sound at a low altitude, which means it could be covering up to 400 meters every second. So the margin of error is extremely low. Now, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves as well, even as the forces uh, spokesperson has said. Typically in these incidents, there can be one of a number of of causal factors. Was it maintenance? Was it uh, a failure of a part? Was there there an issue with visibility? Was it pilot error? Uh, Was it a cascading series of incidents or or items that led to the specific? We we just don't know until we get into the nitty-gritty of the investigation. How difficult will those questions be to answer once the investigation does start? Are those relatively easy to solve or not? It depends, again, upon the extent of the, uh, the damage to the aircraft. Of course, there's a black box on board the, uh, on board the aircraft. They're going to try to recover that, uh, looking at the data and telemetry to figure out what exactly uh, happened. Of course, no pilot wants to hear that it's... Uh, uh, pilot error, which again is is, a, is what I understand. In a lot of instances, uh, media, all of us tend to jump to conclusion. Well, you know, what did he or she do wrong? But again, in many cases, it's it's something else. But uh, again, to get to the bottom of this, it's it's important. So, again, I think just taking time to go through all the evidence on the ground uh, uh, from uh, the flight systems uh, will be needed. Uh, you talked about how, uh, obviously, the sophistication of these these types of aircraft and the maintenance schedules that they do go through. Um, would age be a factor, age of craft in any of this at this point, for as far as these planes are concerned? Well, again, I mean, any aircraft, as it gets older, could potentially suffer from uh, fatigue uh, uh, cracks. But again, all of these aircraft that the, Ford, the Canadian Forces fly undergo very rigorous inspections, and there's different types of inspections at different, uh, at different stages, different number of hours in the air, 
for the for the aircraft for the engines and 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 there are some we call them heavy checks where an aircraft will be stripped down and they will look and at the metal and looking for you know signs of potential uh, fatigue stresses. So again, I've got uh, 100% confidence in the maintenance capabilities of the forces. Um, but again, the, I'm not to say I'm, I'm pointing a finger one direction or the other. But it'll just have to let the investigation uh, take its course. Is it possible to eject from these aircraft safely? Uh, it is, but again, it depends uh, where you are mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, during the issue. So for example, we've had. You know, a couple of uh, air show incidents where the pi- a pilot could have ejected and didn't. Perhaps they were they were coming out of a of a of a of a loop, and perhaps they misjudged or a little bit too close to the ground, and they either couldn't eject or they did eject, uh, but uh, you know maybe the the chute failed or they ejected too close to the ground, not giving the parachute enough time to open up. So it really does depend. But the CF-18 does have for sure a uh, a ejection uh, system. What would that be like, being strapped into one of those things and having that go off? Well, I mean, I'd rather be strapped into one of those things and have that go off than die. So yeah. uh, I, you know, all pilots understand it would be like the ultimate, uh, ultimate ride at, uh, at Canada's Wonderland, augmented to the power of 10. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, you know, we, and we, we train for these, uh, for these uh, eventualities. Uh, fortunately, they're not very often. But even if you look, for example, at the world's largest air force, you look at the American military, whether it's Air Force or the Marines, uh, or even the Army, they fly helicopters. There are incidents all the time. They are very unfortunate, very tragic, but that's a direct reflection that there's a certain degree of risk involved with uh, you know flying aircraft under simulated uh, combat conditions and training, and that's the only way we can get our pilots uh, and our ground staff prepared for potential conflict is to train under exacting conditions that try to replicate as close as possible, the conditions they may be flying under overseas. How strenuous, how hard on the body, how violent on the body is it flying one of these things? We've heard people that, that every so often go up for, for rides with these people and, and pulling X number of Gs and so on and so forth. Like, What is that like to be maneuvering one of these things in one of those yeah, tests? Yeah, I think the last one I saw like that was Rick Mercer from the Mercer Report on CBC had uh, been invited up in a seat, and I think he had to use his uh, his bag. I think it, mm-hmm. it can be stressful, but again, it, it's part of you know selection of pilots. It's a very rigorous, uh, very very uh, uh, detailed process, ensuring that the uh, pilots coming into the pilot training program are uh, can can be subjected to certain mental and physical uh, rigors. The demand at the level of training is exceptional, uh, and, and look at the end of the day, you know there are stresses. That's why so we have. Certain uh, flight suits that our, uh, our our fighter pilots wear, which help uh, to uh, withstand the impact of multiple factors of gravity or g-force on the body, which causes, for example, in a tight turn or a deceleration or acceleration, blood to pool in the lower extremities of the body. So we wear these special flight suits to counteract those things. Look at the end of the day. If you are an extremely tight uh, maneuver, you you'll definitely feel it. But again, that's part of the physical and mental conditioning that uh, all of our pilots uh, go through. All right, let's move on. Uh, another tragedy, a uh, plane carrying uh, a Brazilian soccer team crashes uh, in Colombia. What can you tell us about this type of craft? Uh, the, it's a regional jet four engine. It uh, holds the RJ-85, also called the, uh, known as the, 140, the British Aerospace 146. Holds between 80 and 110 passengers. Uh, this particular type of aircraft was in production between about... Uh, uh, 1983 and 2002, the aircraft in this 
uh, crash yesterday was manufactured in 1999, so roughly uh, 16, 17 years uh, old, although about three or four years it's spent in storage uh, in between uh, aircraft customers. It was registered to uh, La Mia, uh, Bolivia. Um, they originally tried to register this airline in Venezuela, ran into some challenges, and they then uh, re-registered this airline in, in Bolivia, uh, main focus being flying uh, you know, mine charters for mining uh, staff, uh, sports charters in this particular case, of course, football or soccer. And uh, but I, you know, it's a great aircraft. I've flown in them uh, many times, and, and I believe that they used to fly with uh, one or two carriers. Uh, I believe Air Atlantic, going back to the uh, late 90s, was a regional carrier of uh, Canadian Airlines International before its acquisition by Air Canada. And it's a good regional aircraft. Uh, why this again happened? Uh, we have to we have to allow the Colombian uh, accident investigation team to go through the uh, go through the uh, incident site and re, you know review. Hopefully, we can recover uh, both the data and the cockpit voice recorder uh, black boxes and analyze uh, what happened. They'll also be taking a look at the air traffic control uh, records. I know that it was report- reported to be uh, quite foggy at the time. It's a very rugged, mountainous uh, area on the approach into Medellin Airport. And uh, and there have been varying reports of what potentially could have gone wrong. There was a report potentially that the pilots radioed to air traffic control about an electrical problem. Uh, one of the survivors speculated that the uh, I think it may have been a flight attendant that the aircraft had run out of fuel. But again, these are various spurious reports that are very very early. Uh, and again, we just have to give the investigators time to very. Uh, thoroughly go through the uh, the evidence. Robert, when incidents like this happen, it's not very often someone survives. How do you explain six survivors in this? Hard to say. It depends upon you know the speed of the aircraft. It depends upon the angle at which it impacted terrain. It depends upon the specific terrain. Was it heavily forested with uh, big thick you know spruce or pine trees? Uh, with rocky oak cliffs? Uh, relatively flat terrain. Uh, it, it might also depend upon where you're sitting uh, in the aircraft. And, you know, it's funny, it, it goes in circles, where should you sit? You know, uh, common wisdom for years, we sit at the back of the aircraft. If you, if you remember about four years ago, Asiana, which is uh, one of South Korea's major international carriers, um, was going too slow and too low on approach to, uh, to San Francisco International on a flight from Seoul, Korea. And uh, a couple of uh, unlucky uh, people at the back of the airplane got ejected when the tail struck the uh, seawall and approached the runway. So uh, mm. it really does depend. But you know, intuitively, you know, around the wing area, you know, there's more structural uh, integrity there. But there's also fuel tanks there. So right. you know, it's hard. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, but again, these these happen so so rarely. I mean, flying is still an incredibly uh, safe uh, form of transportation. We measure. Uh, instance per per you know million flight hours or per per uh, per million passenger uh, kilometers flown and uh, luckily the last couple of years we've had some some pretty safe uh, pretty safe years if you exclude those two Malaysian jets the one that went missing in the south of the Indian Ocean and also the one that was shot down uh, over Ukraine if you take the two Malaysian incidents out of the equation it's been a very very safe uh, uh, several years for aviation anything more on that missing jet. I mean, debris keeps washing up. I myself was just down in Mozambique in southeast Africa recently on an assignment, and I was down there when more debris had washed up in the area, and it has been definitively proven to be from that ill-fated Malaysian jet, but they still have not been able to pinpoint the exact location. It's a vast expanse of ocean, and uh, and to a certain degree, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. I've got 
uh, I've, I've got confidence you're going to find it. There was an there was an explosion of a South African jumbo jet years and years ago over the Southern Indian Ocean, and uh, took a long time to find it, but they eventually uh, they eventually did. Uh, any more clues as to why it went down? This particular uh, Bolivian airplane? Yes, the latest. Yeah. Uh, don't don't know. I mean, I do. By the way, as one uh, trivia point, that the one of the pilots, about the captain of the aircraft, was actually the owner. Uh, of the uh, of the airline, he he was a registered, uh, fully qualified commercial uh, airline pilot. But again, you know, was it fog? I mean, they could have, you know, approaching Medellin Airport, they would have been doing an instrument approach. So the fog really was, was is a non-factor. Uh, but it could have been, you know, some mechanical uh, failure. Was it was it a fuel starvation? If they had been circling, I haven't seen enough of the replay of the data tapes of the path of the aircraft. If they had been in hold uh, and, and didn't board enough fuel on their departure from Bolivia, I mean, all aircraft have to board a certain amount of what we call contingency fuels, which will, uh, you know, enable an aircraft to fly to an alternate airport, uh, to circle an airport because of air traffic control delays, because of weather delays, a whole host of issues. Uh, so I can't imagine why it would have had a fuel starvation on a relatively simple sector from uh, northern Bolivia into uh, into the middle of Colombia. As you said, there you know there's strict maintenance schedules here, and uh, in, in pointing out to just how safe it is to travel by air. Is it virtually impossible to de- to to detect something or stop something from happening in the air? Is is anything ever foolproof in that I mean, respect? Not at all. I mean, when, again, as I said, by the way, one sidebar. I mean, I I don't know the rigors of the extent of of, of safety standards practiced by the Bolivian Civil Aviation Agency. I, I, I can't comment on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, you know, rigorous uh, uh, maintenance schedules and programs at, uh, for example, Canada's carriers, Air Canada, WestJet, Transat, uh, uh, for three, uh, you know, certainly when they put their aircraft through heavy maintenance checks, they, they find things, and, that, and that's what those programs are designed to do to catch. Uh, can you catch 100% of things? No, that's just part of the game. But the whole objective of, of, a, of a rigorous maintenance program combined with high degree of regulatory and safety oversight is to, is to minimize risk factors down to the absolute lowest uh, level possible. Robert Kokonis has been with us, President and Managing Director of AirTrav Incorporated and an aviation advisory firm. Robert, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. On the issue of electricity, Energy Minister uh, duties industry instead of cancelling wins mistake. This on uh, the Toronto Star article that says Ontarios could one day choose individual hydro pricing pricing plans. Uh, You can read the link, of course, with this comment on Facebook and Twitter, but it, it uh, it's just bizarre. Wayne says it's like throwing a dice at a crap game to see what you're going to pay these liberals. It's bizarre in their thinking. If anything they should do, then give a rebate to people who have already paid extra because of their mistakes. Uh, election is coming, and this could all be hype or dirt flying. Uh, out of the hole that they have dug for their party. Uh, And I mentioned the uh, Toronto Star article. Uh, The minister goes on to say that uh, he's issued a challenge uh, to re- for for industry to rethink how the province's electricity system works. Well, I thought they had done that with the green energy plan. He wants to find innovative ways to trim costs for people with struggling with hydro bills. Well, that would be everybody. That'd be everyone. 
goes on to say that the way the electricity system has been run with the government arbitrarily mandating how much of the supply must be from nuclear, gas, wind, solar, and other sources has led to uncompetitive prices. What? Mandating how much the supply must be from nuclear, wind, gas, solar, and other sources has led to uncompetitive pricing? No, what's led to uncompetitive pricing is what the Auditor General calls overspending for green energy by $37 billion. They've admitted there's a mistake. Why don't they just fix it? Instead of now asking industry to come up with ways, innovative ways? I thought that was the minister's job. And one innovative way might be correcting the green energy plan. Dr. Ross McKittrick is with us, professor of economics and CBE fellow in sustainable commerce, Department of Economics and Finance, University of Guelph, and is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Is this a shell game, Ross, or is is there something here? Uh I don't think it even rises to the level of a shell game. It's more like a promise that there might be a shell game uh, at some point in the future. I couldn't really make sense of what he was proposing. Like you say, he's thrown this challenge out to industry to come up with innovative solutions, blah, 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 but they control every aspect of the power system. I mean, it's all directed now out of the minister's office. So what are the industry people supposed to do? Um and he's still defending the Green Energy Act in, in the same article um, after admitting that there's this big problem and people are really struggling with high electricity prices. He then said, but we're not actually going to touch any of the, the big policies that we brought in that led to this. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is he, is he not asking for industry to come up with a solution that is or was or is Wynn's mistake? Yeah, I'd be curious to know what people in the audience thought of that, because all the important decisions are out of their hands. They centralized power over the electricity system into the minister's office because they thought they could do a really good job of running the system. And um, so, for example, when he says that in the future they might give people the option of not participating in the time-of-use pricing, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars forcing everybody uh, to put in these smart meters so that we're all charged on time-of-use pricing. I was just about to say, isn't that what the and smart meter they, is? they say we, they might give us the option, well, it's too late. We all have these smart meters. And uh, maybe the, what they should have done in the beginning is said, maybe they'll give people the option of opting into time-of-use pricing if they want to. But they forced us all into it. So it's meaningless to say that at some point they may give us the option of not uh, having time-of-use pricing. She admitted uh, a few weeks ago that this was a mistake. Why don't they just fix the mistake? Uh, well, in order to fix the mistake, they would have to, well, they'd have to go a little deeper into the system than they're doing, but they would have to tear up policies that they've really staked their reputation on. They've, um, they, but, they but, isn't all that out, but isn't all that out the window, Ross? Sorry to interrupt, but isn't all that out the window once you admit it's a mistake? And once you admit it's a mistake, it's wrong. It has to be corrected. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope so. I think, actually, they're not really at the level of admitting they made a mistake. Um, they admit that there's a problem out there, and they'd like to somehow get credit for fixing it if only they could come up with a solution that doesn't admit or that doesn't involve changing course on, on any of their their nearest and dearest 
policy initiatives. But have they really identified what the mistake was? Like, is the mistake the fact that people's rates are so high? Is the mistake the fact that they made that happen by the deals that they cut? Like, I don't understand what they're pointing to. Um, yeah, like in the in the speech that the minister made, uh, at least the excerpts that I saw, he doesn't address this problem of the global adjustment. Um, he, he's saying that there needs to be more competition in, in the, the power supply, but actually the um, the cost of producing the electricity isn't the problem. There's a lot of competition now, and power rates are very low in the province of Ontario. It's the surcharge, it's the global adjustment that's that's um, sending the the price through the roof for people, and that's all government-driven. That's, that's absolutely nothing to do with what the industry chooses to do. That's them sucking money out of the system. Yes. So, uh, is the what is the end game here by the minister even announcing this that you know we've we've got to we're challenging industry to come up with a solution? Um, what's his end game in this? Just to keep it all confusing because most people and and even reading this article in the Star, it is extremely confusing, and I think they're almost trying to do that so we just give up and walk away. Uh, well, the only problem is, yeah, people will get, give up trying to figure out what they're talking about, but their electricity bills are still going to come at the end of the month. Yeah. Um, so I think the end game is that um, we're in for a little period now. If they're going to come up with these um, odd little plans, you know, maybe they'll change from using black ink to blue ink to print your bill or something, and they'll, <laughs> they'll make it sound like that's the solution. But the problem is still there that they have rigged they've set up the system so that the revenue requirements are enormous and they have to keep hitting people with this global adjustment each month uh to to boost the revenue and until they fix that then all these other schemes are really beside the point i mean nothing in the minister's speech had to do with reducing the revenue requirements in the system uh so that they can start bringing the global adjustment down uh so, um, I, you know, you ask what the end game is. Uh, at, at least as far as this goes, the end game comes at the end of the month when the power bills come in and they're still as high as they were before. Uh, is there a solution? I mean, many have said that this is so complicated and detailed that we're done for 20 years. Is that accurate or is there things that can be done that fix this system or at least correct it or make it more balanced? Um, well, ultimately, what has to be done is to um, look at the uh, to break open the black box of the global adjustment and look at where they're pumping the money each month and uh, get those um, uh, those cost drivers off the system. And it may mean uh, tearing up some big contracts and going the legislative route. And it will certainly mean. Uh, scaling back the commitment to renewables because um, that's where a lot of the money is going, and revisiting uh, some of the supply decisions that they've they've made over the past ten years. Um, it, like I say, it involves walking back from some of the big policy commitments that they've made and how they wanted to change the system. And there's no indication that they're prepared to do that. Yes, it could be done. Like there's. Um, if a government decided they really want to get electricity prices down and basically join the rest of North America and enjoying uh, lower electricity prices, then they could do it. It's 
um, it, ultimately, it's it's in the control of, of the Minister of Energy. So, again, why politically, why wouldn't they do that? I mean, obviously, they're already taking the heat for admitting a mistake. Wouldn't it look good if they could somehow correct it, as opposed to just making life more confusing with it, uh, for us by the minister saying what he said earlier on about whatever it was that he was talking about. I mean, why do they just not come up with a solid plan and go, all right, we made a mistake. I know that da-da-da-da-da, but here's our way out. Here's what we do. This way we can, you know, keep, uh, you know, our, our working on our uh, sustainable, uh, renewable energy, but we're not going to we're, we're not gonna put everybody in the poorhouse. I mean, isn't that the answer here, no matter what that plan is? Um, well, uh, that would, I mean... What you say sounds sensible to me, um, but uh, I've been watching this disaster unfold for the past ten years and could never make sense of what they were doing. So, um, so is this about green? Is this about being so stuck on uh, you know green activism that you're going to drive it into the ground no matter what, or is it we're just receiving so much money for our government from these we just can't let go? Uh, no, I think it's the first one. I, I think they've. Uh, they they really went on a propaganda rampage a decade ago and told people that we have this terribly dirty, filthy power system and it, it's killing us all and we have to close it down and, and build a brand new one with windmills and solar panels. And they really have to go back to that and say, look, we overdid it. Um, our power system was not a threat to our life and health. It was actually quite a good power system. And uh, but you can't run a modern power system without relying on fossil fuels. I mean, if they they can't take the nuclear plant, the Darlington plant offline for refurbishment and make up for it with windmills, because sometimes the wind isn't blowing. And so you have to have fossil fuels involved in the system, so you have control over how much power you have. And so, But they've done so much work demonizing uh, the conventional uh, coal and gas power plants in the province that's where um, they have to begin by going back and, and saying to people, you know what, we actually um, overstated that problem. And um, we were in pretty good shape as far as air quality goes. So, um, uh, Because that's where the um, when they look at building a more conventional and more um, cost-effective power system, it's going to have to involve fossil fuels again. So, um, obviously, they sold this bill of goods to Ontarians, even were aware, you know, told Ontarians, you're going to have to pay for this. Uh, and at one point, uh, Premier Wynne called us all bad actors. Uh, and again, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I'm assuming what she meant by that was, you know, you walk the walk, you don't, or you talk the talk, you don't walk the walk. Now, all of a sudden, we're, you know, at the stage where, where leaders are, or our leader is, is admitting uh, a mistake. Do they not want to admit that they basically sold us a bill of goods that, that wasn't accurate, that wasn't true? I would hope so. Um, I'd be curious to know if in their own private conversations they're at that point of admitting that um, they they said a lot of untrue things over the years. Uh, I know back in the early part of the last decade there was a big blackout over Northeast North America mm-hmm. and coming out of that people realized there needed to be some investments in the distribution system um, and they've used that excuse for a long time too. They've said well part of the 
the reason we spent all this money is because we had to rebuild the distribution system. Right. But that was only a part of it, and, and that doesn't account for these, these bills that people are paying, because other jurisdictions had to do a lot of rebuilding, too, and, and um, they haven't had the same problems that we have. Um, yeah, we're forgetting that uh, that big blackout also affected a great deal of the northeastern United States as well. Yeah, they're not going through the yeah. same thing we are by any means, are they? Yeah. So, you know, they've, they've trotted out these kinds of excuses. And I, I think at the end, they're all wearing thin and um, they don't add up. And so I would hope that in private, uh, uh, the cabinet and the government officials realize that they brought this on the province and it's their fault and they have to fix it. Um, but judging by the minister's speech, it's not obvious that it, they really got to that point. Do, uh, another question, and, and, and I guess this seems like common sense and very simplistic, but why couldn't they see this coming, Ross? Why couldn't, like, don't, I mean, they must have run the numbers. They must have had some sort of business plan, how they were all going to pay for it. And why couldn't they see this coming? Well, the, the first uh, Auditor General's report on the Green Energy Act uh, one of the, the main conclusions he drew was, uh, amazingly enough, there was absolutely no advance analysis, no cost-benefit analysis, no nothing. They just, uh, you know, the Premier McGinty at one point um, has had this saying about, in this world, you just uh, pick a road and you run it. You know, you, you, <laughs> you pick your lane and, and you go. And that was their thinking. They, they just got enamored with an idea about green energy and said, we're going to do it, and we're not even going to look at the numbers. And um, so here we are. Uh, what, do you think this is going to resonate and continue to resonate with Ontarians right up until the next election? People keep thinking this will be off the table by then. Be, you know, there's a long time between now and then. Uh, but as you mentioned, this has been brewing and, and slowly increasing uh, over time. Do you, think, do you think this is something that's going to stay on the minds of Ontarians for a while? Well, there's every indication that... Um the province isn't going to do anything to actually fix the problem. So um, I think people will still be paying very high electricity prices by the next election. Um, I, y- y- you never know. People may just decide they actually like paying really high electricity prices and they no longer complain about it. But um, just over the past six or eight months, I think the mood has changed dramatically and, and certainly... Um, the amount of media coverage and the way it resonates with people, um, that is a new thing. Like uh, having been, work- like I say, working on this for 10 years, some of us saw this coming and we were trying to warn about it. And it wasn't until this year that it, it really hit the fan. And, um, and now, um, people are talking about it all the time. And, and, uh, you know, I'm on your radio show, but I've been on uh, an awful lot of radio shows and, mm-hmm. and print. The interviews and that to me is an indicator that um, now the general public wants to get to the bottom of this. Can another party come in and fix this? Does it require something else? Um, it, it, well, it would probably would require another party. I would say that the, um, if a government comes in and wants to fix it, they have to be very motivated. Like it's not going to be the case that they could come in and just tweak a few things here and there and the problem will go away. If there was an easy fix to it, uh, the current government would have um, embraced it. 
Um, but do the other parties have a plan? Do they have something in place that, you know, once we get in there, then we're going to dit, 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 and it's not right It's not right away, it's not immediate, but at least we're on our way to some sort of balance? I haven't looked too closely. Um, I mean, in particular, it would be the PCs, and I haven't looked too closely at what they're proposing. Um, I would just say that, um, yes, it is possible to turn this around. Uh, they would have to... Um, be prepared to, um, well, they'd have to be very motivated to do it, and they would have to be willing to say to the public, um, we can fix this, but it does mean uh, we're going to be doing some things that the previous government said either you can't do or you shouldn't do, and it turns out that it is worth doing them, and so here we go. Um, But so, um, yeah, I guess uh, it's a matter of, is the government really motivated to fix it, and do they, they recognize it? So basically what the energy minister energy. said yesterday, uh, or rather today in, in or, or rather, sorry, yesterday in the Star, uh, with this plan, is there, as you look at it as an expert, is there any validity to it? Is there, a, is there, is it smoke and mirrors? Um. I, well, I couldn't really see what the plan was. Um, it, just a call for more flexibility in, in various options, but um, uh, and, and calling for industry to be innovative. Um, hmm. So I don't think there's any validity to it. Um, again, it doesn't get the revenue requirements down. It, it doesn't so, uh, solve the problem of this big global adjustment uh, that hits every month. And um, uh, so... I would be very surprised if this has any effect at all on people's electricity bills. Dr. Ross McKittrick has been with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. Thanks, Scott. Have a- Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm looking over this. I read this article. I have no idea. I, 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 they just they just babble. They just come out and they babble and they think you're so stupid that you just, oh, yeah, that'll work. You know, and, and now they're asking on in industry to come up with some, to be innovative. They're, they're asking industry to do everything that they didn't do. You know, they're asking industry to bail them out of projects where they never did a cost analysis, where they didn't do their due diligence, where they didn't have a business plan. And it's not like, you know, Professor Dr. Ross McKittrick of the University of Guelph hasn't been telling them this for the last 10 years. Professors are saying this won't work. Yet they just keep heading down the plan. And what really irritates me is we have other provinces in this country that are about to embark on the same thing, as is the federal government with cap and trade. Or carbon pricing or whatever you want to call it. So shouldn't Wynn at least be standing up and say, okay, we had to be first uh, and I drove it into the bush Uh, But we're going to tell you what we did wrong so you don't make the same mistakes that we made. No, that Wynne made, she made. And that Prime Minister Trudeau won't make again for all of us. Is that asking too much? You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
A report from the Moway Centre at the University of Toronto says that Canada should consider radical changes to its social safety net as the country faces losing 7.5 million jobs to automation. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Sunil, Johal, uh, Sunil Johal is with us, Policy Director of the Moet Centre School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto and is co-author of the report on automation and is with us now. Hello, Sunil. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us again. We greatly do appreciate this. Uh, we've seen automation in industry over the last century, uh, you know, and this sort of thing happen as as progress continues through the decades. Why are things different now, Sunil? Uh, so, as you say, this is nothing new. I mean, com- machines have always been, or not always, but for the, as you say, for the past 150 years or so, have been with us and have been replacing humans. But what we've usually seen is humans finding other jobs. So kind of new, new, new demands emerge for different kinds of labor, uh, and, and people kind of shift around, and we generally have an unemployment rate, even in Canada right now, that's kind of around the 6-7% mark, which isn't too bad. But what's different now is that whereas historically machines have always been replacing the muscle power of humans, so a tractor pulling goods around or uh, plowing a field, now we're starting to see computers and machines that can actually outthink uh, humans. So that potentially is a game changer where uh, we have to start to question, well, if computers can think better than we can in many different uh, ways, where are we going to go and what can we actually do better than uh, than computers can? This almost sounds like an old episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, so is this about artificial intelligence then? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. So, I mean, we have the phrase automation, which could be machines, but it's a, part, a separate but related concept is this idea of artificial uh, intelligence. So I'll give you a good example. The IBM has a computer called Watson, which a lot of people have probably heard about because it's they've, they've used this computer to do many different kinds of tasks and mm-hmm. uh, as a bit of a demonstration to show how, how smart their, their technology is. So recently they uh, used Watson to analyze cancer cases. So they had Watson look at a series of cases that uh, oncologists and doctors had already looked at and examined, and 99% of the time Watson came up with the same diagnosis or the same findings uh, as the doctor. So that's one thing, and that's impressive. But the really impressive thing is the computer actually found in 30% of the cases uh, a new issue that the doctors had never uh, considered. So that's the real interesting piece here is that com- computers are actually kind of matching these well-trained uh, doctors and experts, uh, and then actually going a step above and beyond that and finding things that they couldn't even find. So really all we need is one really good specialist, and he programs the computer for everyone. Yeah, I mean, a specialist, or if you think about a law firm, for example, I mean, a lot of lawyers are doing legal research and looking for that one case uh, that happened 30 years ago that might be the key to unlocking whatever their uh, cases today. Uh, but a person, like a lawyer at a firm, can only read hundred, couple hundred pages a day. I mean, a computer could be programmed to scan every case in the history of Canadian jurisprudence and find that one case to unlock uh, their case now, and they could do that in 30 seconds. Uh, I mean, so that's the interesting part is we're not just seeing automation take the job of people working on farms or working in factories now. We're seeing doctors, lawyers, journalists, 
potentially at risk of losing all or part of their jobs to machines and computers as well. So this is affecting all pay grades, not just the labor, uh, labor industry. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, the real game changer here is that historically we've seen uh, kind of relatively lower paying jobs be at risk of this type of progress. But now it's an issue that's really creeping up the income scale. So the question is going to be, does that put more pressure on governments because you've got more affluent uh, citizens and people from across the entire income scale saying, hey, what what about me? And what what if I lose my job? And not even if I lose my job, but what if my sector disappears or my profession uh, looks radically different in five or 10 years than it does today? So is progress outpacing our ability to retrain and provide replacement jobs for these people? Yeah, I think... Because I mean, normally attrition would help here as well, but is, is it outpacing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the risk here, is that if, if some of the projections that have been done, uh, so the Brookfield Institute at Ryerson came up with the figure of about 42% of jobs in Canada at risk over the next 10 to 20 years, so that's about 7.5 million jobs. But even at the low end, I mean, other studies from the OECD put the number in Canada at about a million and a half jobs over the next 10 to 20 um, years. And that, if, if that is the case, I mean, we don't really have a job engine in Canada that's capable of generating that many jobs. I mean, in the last year uh, in Canada, I think we, we generated roughly 130,000, give or take, jobs in the year. And most of those jobs were actually uh, part-time. So we're, we're not, we're, we may be generating jobs, but we're not generating full-time, well-paying jobs that have benefits. And that's really the point of our uh, report is that Canadian governments need to think about if the workplace of the future looks like a lot of part-time people, people on contract, people on casual terms of employment, uh, what's going to happen to those people if they need mental health services, they need pharmaceuticals, or if they're unemployed and they don't have access to employment insurance? Our programs don't really match the reality of today's and especially tomorrow's labor uh, market. So, we really so theoretically, to... the government could be asked to provide the benefits that companies now do to full-time employees. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the gap that we've seen emerge uh, yeah. in the past 30 or 40 years, where most people in the past had full-time jobs with benefits and pensions. Today, that's not the reality. I mean, 50% of people uh, in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area are in jobs with some element of precariousness. Uh, attached to them. So the question is, when and how is government going to step in and fill those gaps where people aren't getting those same benefits like pensions and health care benefits from their employer anymore? Can we predict how many jobs will be produced by technology as we lose these? We haven't looked into that. I mean, I think that's kind of, all of this is speculative. I mean, the number seven and a half million, the one and a half million jobs lost, like it's, it's all a projection and nobody knows the future. Um, but I, I think we can assume for sure some jobs will be created as we see uh, as we see pattern shifts. So, I mean, 500,000 people, for example, drive for a living in Canada right now. So autonomous vehicles might cost a lot of those people jobs, but theoretically then you might see other types of jobs associated with autonomous vehicles uh, be generated. So somebody who uh, is fixing those cars, there's kind of probably going to be kind of like higher order maintenance associated with those types of cars than you might see with a traditional kind of the cars we have today on the road. So there will definitely be jobs created. I, whether or not that'll be enough to offset the jobs that we're going to see lost, I think is a very, it's tough to say, but I would, I, I would speculate probably not. 
Is this about creating a safety net or creating, um, uh, you know, a system where people can continually upgrade and retrain? You know, I'm thinking of my father who worked in the same job for 32 years. That just doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, my work life compared to his and, and how mine has evolved and, 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 uh, and you can, you're can basically continually upgrading all the time. Is that where we have to spend our time as opposed to coming up with safety nets for when jobs that were, are being replaced by technology? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a combination for sure, but training and skills is a huge part of this. If somebody's sector disappears and there's nowhere for them to go back to if they were working on X kind of job, uh, then who's going to help retrain that person so they don't become a drain on social services and they can get back into some other kind of job, a new job that might have been created uh, by a technology as well. And the, right now, we don't have very strong skills and training initiatives from the government side, and the private sector historically in Canada hasn't really stepped up to train its own employees either. So the question is, who's going to step in and fill that gap? I mean, we would argue it's got to be the government. Uh, I mean, if you look at some other countries around the world, like Denmark, we point out in the report, is a, a good model for a country that invests a lot in training its employees. They they spend about six times more per capita than Canada does uh, on skills and training uh, programs. So if we can invest more in, in those types of programs, then we don't have to worry as much about uh, social services, social assistance type uh, programs, because we can rebound people back into the job market quickly. Uh, you referred to the Danish model in your in your report, and also the term flex security. Expand on that. Sure. So Denmark has this model. Uh, like in Canada, we have employment insurance, and we have skills training programs attached to that. But in Denmark, they have something called the flex security model. It's a combination of flexibility and security. So there's really three key planks. To this one, and this, this one sounds a bit counterintuitive, it's actually easier for Danish companies to hire and fire uh, people. So you don't have kind of the legacy obligations of it's going to take me six months to get rid of somebody who's not performing or who, whose job isn't really required uh, anymore. I can do that pretty much quickly. And 25% of, Den- of Danes switch in the private sector switch jobs every year. So a very high rate of turnover. They kind of move around and go to the jobs that are needed. How do you balance that with unions and those sorts of agreements? Well, that's the thing. There's a, there's a huge, I, I would say, lack of conversation going on in Canada between the unions, government, and the private sector about what does our labor market need to look like. And I think unions play an important role in protecting workers' rights on the one hand, but in some ways, sometimes they might get in the way of mm-hmm. uh, so at the end of the day, a the, more productive uh, environment. And at the end of the day, this just all has to be streamlined and more nimble. Well, exactly, and that's what we talk about in the report. So Denmark pays people more money for longer periods of time when they're unemployed. They have access to much, much better skills and training programs. That's what we need. I mean, we need a program. We need programs that look like what the labor market will, which is very fluid, people moving between jobs, needing some maybe short-term training. Like we're not talking about maybe they need to go get a three-year bachelor's degree, but maybe they need to take a six-week course in computer coding or or something like that. But who's going to pay for that? And do we have the service providers that can give that training quickly, effectively, and efficiently and get people back into jobs? What industries do you think are going to be affected first? Uh, I mean, I mentioned driving is one. So I mean, I think that's kind of an immediate impact where we've already got driverless cars on the road. Ontario announced yesterday they're going to be piloting driverless cars yeah. in three different communities. So uh, I could easily see within five years a 
100,000, 200,000 people who have been driving for a living, having to find other jobs. I think the service industry is going... Yeah, but do you think we're honestly going to have the driverless car situation figured out in five years that it will be replacing workers? Oh, yeah. Workers? I, I think once it starts happening, it'll yeah. be very quick. And it'll especially be... I mean, it may not be as much in kind of urban centers and driving around in downtown Toronto for taxis maybe, but for sure on like long haul trucking and mm-hmm. shipping. I mean, even in the oil sands in Alberta right now, like they've, they've been using some of these driverless technologies already. Uh, so on industrial sites and kind of forklifts and things right. like that, like we think all of those are, are driving jobs too. Like yeah, good point. Cabs, yeah, yeah. If you're in a warehouse and it's like, it's not really much risk because there's not a lot of people around, it's like why not go to a machine that's never going to get tired, doesn't need overtime, yeah. uh, never going to call in. So that's one. I mean, you could also think about like the service industries where uh, people who are cashiers, for example. I mean, the technology is already in place if you go to yep. a Canadian Tire where you sure. can go through the automated checkout lane. So if companies mm-hmm. are looking to maximize profits and cut costs, that's an obvious place where have one person standing there supervising eight checkout lines instead of having seven uh, cashiers. So that's another one. Uh, I mean, really, you can kind of look up yeah. and down the market. I mean, even something as seemingly complicated as financial advisors, we're seeing a lot of robo-advisors on, on, coming online in the U.S. where they can give you pretty much just as good a return on your investment portfolio, but at a far lower uh, rate cost. Because hmm. it's, a, it's a computer program, and it can tailor things much more effectively uh, than a person might be able to. So I would say the sky is really the limit in terms of what, jobs might be affected, and that's really, I mean, the interesting slash scary part of this. So what message does this send to students, Sunil? What industries are safest? Well, I mean, the thing that we've we've found, and as we looked at all the research that's been done in this area, the thing that, the characteristic that t- really kind of immunizes you from automation is, are you doing a job that is not routine. If you're doing a job that's routine, it's very likely it's going to be automated. And that can be Good a point. routine manual job, so yeah. uh, construction or something like that, or like you're working in an auto assembly plant, or it could be a routine cognitive job. So if you're a receptionist uh, at a law firm, it's possible that your job might be automated. But if you are working in a job where things are dynamic, they're changing all the time, that's a tough thing for uh, robots or artificial intelligence to take over. So nursing, for example, is an area where we've seen massive growth uh, in in recent years in Canada. So kind of like the care professions where people right. want a human touch when you're in a nursing home or when you're dealing with like uh, early childhood educators or kindergarten teachers and things like that. So if you're doing a job where things are changing and dynamic, then uh, it's probably less likely that your job would be at risk. Let me ask you this, Sunil, we don't have much time left, um, so this will be my last question. Sure. Will we see jobs that perhaps in the past didn't pay more now be paid more because of this changing shift in how uh, our, our, our economies and our industry works? Uh, I think what we're going to continue to see is the middle is going to continue to be squeezed out in terms yeah. of income. So more, there will be a small percentage of people are making a lot of money here. So yeah. the people are kind of programming the computers and kind of... Yeah, the people running automation. Yeah, the people who are producing the yeah. automation are going to make off make out very well. And there's going to be a lot of precarious, fairly low-paid jobs, but like the good, solid job paying fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year with benefits... Uh, I think that's the, those are the ones that are most at risk here. Uh, once again, more and more difficult to sustain the middle class. Yeah, exactly. So that And that's one of the things in our report is that uh, we're seeing more income inequality, more pr- precarious work across the board, and these technology trends are really just 
uh, accelerating those uh, pre-existing trends. Does do uh, countries like uh, our Danish countries, like the model you're talking about, do, do they have it figured out? Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't think anybody has a full answer to this because I don't think anybody really knows yeah. what do you do if there are thirty or forty percent fewer jobs available in your society. Because I mean, who's paying taxes then, and yeah. all kinds of different questions. So I, nobody has that figured out. But I think some countries do have a better handle on skills training, for example. Uh, but perhaps, Anil, it will lead to more socialization. <laughs> uh, it's possible. I mean, it, more to face-to-face communication. Well, that's the thing. If I think that's one of potentially one of the benefits, maybe people will talk to each other more. There you go. Sunil Johal has been with us, policy director at the Moet Center School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto. Sunil, thanks again for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.